This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Working, the podcast about what people do all day. I'm Jacob Brogan. This season on Working, we've been talking to people employed in fields threatened by the Trump administration's agenda. For this episode, we spoke with Lori Allen, Assistant Director for Digital Scholarship at the University of Pennsylvania's Libraries. Though her training in librarianship had her working the reference desk for years, she's since shifted over to more data-centric scholarship. Recently, those efforts led her to help spearhead the Data Refuge Project, an attempt to download and securely preserve federal climate and environmental data. We're talking about information about sea levels and temperature changes, stuff that the new administration would probably rather not share with the rest of us, if they're collecting it at all. In this episode, Alan talks us through the Data Refuge Project, but she also goes into how and why she became a librarian in the first place, how she helps students raised on Google process and understand the information they're studying, and what a typical day is like in the library, and a lot more. Then, in a Slate Plus Extra, Alan talks about a related project she's been involved with, one that focuses on data drawn from the Schuylkill River. If you're a member, enjoy bonus segments and interview transcripts from working, plus other great podcast exclusives. Start your two-week free trial at slate.com slash working plus. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Lori Allen and I'm a librarian. What kind of librarian are you? I think of myself these days as a digital scholarship librarian, which is kind of a new kind of librarian. How is that new? What's new about it? Uh, Generally... Digital scholarship is collaborating with faculty and students in the creation of scholarship in new forms. So in academic world, um, scholarship mostly is books and articles, but increasingly in the digital world, a work of scholarship might be an interface, it might be a data set, it might be um, a workflow, it might be a collaborative art installation that has pieces from community members and as well as scholarship. And so really it's multimodal scholarship. And so if you think about libraries as being the sort of long-term home for sharing the collected knowledge of our communities or our society, if we're going to be storing and sharing these new forms of multimodal scholarship, we need to understand how they're made, how they can be saved, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, saving and storing and creating long-term access to digital materials is just a really complicated problem. And so a lot of the work that I do in my department is sort of experimenting with various ways of thinking about how long can knowledge last in different forms. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that you're really leaning into the values that are at the the heart of librarianship is is through this 
data preservation project that you're engaged in right now. Can you tell us? Sure. What's it called again? <clears throat> it's called Data Refuge. Data Refuge. And what is it? So um, Data Refuge is a really distributed collaborative project that is moving quickly in response to the change in U.S. administrations. Um, the goal of Data Refuge is to create safe copies of climate and environmental data that's currently housed on federal websites mm-hmm. to make sure that those data remain available to communities as trustworthy copies and that we don't lose those facts that are currently being housed on, you know, Department of Energy, EPA, um, Department of the Interior, Agriculture, NOAA, NASA. Right now, we're focusing on climate and environmental data, but I'm also really happy. One of the reasons I'm here in D.C. is to talk about broadening our efforts beyond climate and environmental data. So how did this project start in the first place? It started at a few different places sort of simultaneously. So one really key collaborator is this project called the End of Term Archive that's actually been around for three administration changes. The End of Term Archive is a project in collaboration with the Internet Archive and others to harvest government websites before they disappear. And, you know, the fact that government websites disappear and that's just a thing that happens, I think we haven't really attended to like how weird that is. Like that shouldn't really be happening, but it does. It happens every four years. It happens much more often than that, but it happens at a huge scale every four years. But recognizing the huge amount of work that the Obama administration had done to make public data available and also just how much more our society relies on data for all sorts of things. Like data is just another kind of evidence. There's no magic to it. It's just information that we use to describe people or places. And I think it it gets sort of mythologized as being sort of magically more real than other kinds of information when we call it data. But I think, you know, information about communities in whatever form is vital to everything that those communities do and need to do. This project feels so important in part because, um, the environment is changing so quickly, and we just need all the information that we have gathered. We So many researchers and scientists and buoys on the ocean are feeding data into our federal systems. And to let that data, which we need so vitally to act on immediately, disappear seems just terrible. Like I think of things like air quality measures as they affect kids with asthma in particular communities. Um, Looking at those relationships is hard if you don't have the air quality measures. And it's hard to advocate for cleaner air if you don't actually know what's coming into the air. And Mm. I obviously really care about changes to the ozone layer too. So I feel like this project is much bigger than my own interest in sort of like urban communities taking advantage of their own data. And so the Program in Environmental Humanities at Penn has a group of fellows, they're graduate fellows, and they raised this issue. Hey, wait, what are we going to do when all this open data goes away? And so they came to the library and and they kind of began to plan what we thought of at first as a hackathon and really kind of grew from there into this creative codeathon that we hosted at Penn January 13th and 14th. So that was how our energy got started. At the same time, folks at the University of Toronto who had lived through the Harper administration, which was really anti-science in a lot of ways, um, and that really did destroy quite a bit of scientific data and evidence, the folks at the University of Toronto, knowing that that had happened and knowing how much their own research and the research in their communities relied on federal and on U.S. environmental 
and climate data um, began an effort on their own. And so there were a couple of fellows from the Environmental Humanities Program who went to their event in Toronto. And then we brought a couple of them down to our event and we've been working closely. And um, so what they did at their event was send things to the Internet Archive, was basically feed the Internet Archive. Just this nonprofit yes. site that preserves as much of the Internet in as many copies as it can, right? Basically, the, the Internet Archive... Um, has a, a huge range of collections. One collection that it has, um, which is often referred to as the Wayback Machine, and is very cool, and everyone should go check out the Wayback Machine, is a way to look at the internet as it existed in the past. So you can pick a website and pick a date and go look at what that website looked like on that date. Sometimes even on that time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, they don't get everything. Right. However, um, they don't get everything for all kinds of reasons. So the end of term harvest is designed to really like sort of pick up as much as possible from federal websites. That said, federal websites are giant. And so the event at the University of Toronto was designed to feed the Internet Archive more and more pages that were just focused on the EPA so that it would really get those. Not to get too technical, but data that is housed on federal servers and is offered up through federal websites isn't always crawlable by the Internet Archive's machines. Sometimes you go to the Wayback Machine and you go to a page and the page isn't there. But sometimes you go and the page is there, but the part where there was a search box is empty. Mm. The Wayback Machine can't grab a whole search mechanism, right? But that's not because the data is not publicly available. It's just because of the way the website exactly. is set up. Right? So there's nothing illegal, nothing no. untoward about going on these sites and just pulling all yeah. of the data off if you can figure out how to do that. Exactly. So, right. If it's federal government data and it's on federal websites and it's open, we can legally get it. We're basically querying the database and they provide ways to get the data. That's why it's on a public website is so that people can get it. And so just downloading all of it is not illegal at all. So that's what we're doing. We're downloading it. We're checking it. We're verifying it. We're passing librarian eyes over it, as well as others. So what does that look like for you? So we have this whole workflow. Basically, you get a bunch of developers together and they pick a website or a data source, really. They download as much as they can, and then they pass it along to a scientist or a researcher or maybe another technology person, depending on how big the data set is, to check it, to make sure, hey, could a scientist understand this? Does it make sense on its own? Because we have to imagine that the original website is going to go away. Because they could pull the numbers in a way that would garble it or, or screw up the... Exactly. Or the easiest example is you give someone a spreadsheet with abbreviated column headings, and then you don't give them the information about what the column headings mean. Okay. Right? Like, that happens. Right. Because um, that information was on the original page, but it's not in the data set. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to make sure that the data set has all of the stuff that you would need to make sense of it. So it goes to another set of eyes. They take a look at it, say, yes, both this is what it says it is and it's everything I would need in order to understand it. And then it goes to a librarian or digital preservation person who does some digital preservation to it to make sure that the actual bits themselves don't change now that we're sure they are what they say they are. So it's about securing the data yeah. against bit rot. Exactly. Things like this. Yeah. So um, it's they use a protocol called Bagit developed by the Library of Congress. So we call them baggers. They um, basically wrap up the data. Um, what we would love to do is then like unpack it and make it look really beautiful. But right now we're just really in like full getting it, making sure we have it secure. And so from there it goes into the data refuge storage. And then eventually we make a record for it in our instance um, online so people can see it. So the data refuge storage, that's with uh, Internet Archive or is that on your library servers? No, we have storage space. Right now it's on Amazon 
we're just storing on Amazon servers. In, in the cloud, as it were. Well, yes, in warehouses owned by Amazon. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, exactly. So we're storing it um, and, you know, replicating it and all that and then making it available for anyone to download and reuse and copy. But that part's not going to Internet Archive. The only stuff that's going to Internet Archive is the web pages. Okay. Sounds like right now there is a special sense of urgency yes. to this. Can you just say a little bit more about why you feel like you just have to jump on this and gun forward right now? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> climate change is real. Um, that's a big part of it, right? I mean, the fact that we started with environmental and climate data, we know that data is at risk. I think when we first started, we thought maybe it would be, and maybe this would just be insurance and it wouldn't be really a problem, but it seems pretty clear that it, it will be a problem. And partially, I mean, if they cut EPA staff to a third of its current size, there just won't be people to keep those servers running. And this data is so, so vital to so many communities. I mean, when city planners are making decisions about how to zone various areas, if they don't know what sea level is going to look like in 15 years, you just don't know where to build roads. I mean, it's there's some really practical things. I mean, we're worried. Um, I think we're taking action quickly, but responsibly right now um, in the library community and in the much broader sort of there's a huge number of volunteers who have nothing to do with libraries who are just contributing because they need this data in their work. Given the urgency of this process right now, are you finding that that you and your colleagues and, and your collaborators have to make tough decisions about what gets saved? I wish that we were making tough decisions like – but I think right now um, we, we sent a survey out to the Union of Concerned Scientists and to others. The survey is still on our website saying what is the data that you need for your research. And so we had scientists identify data that was really important to them and we talked with a lot of people about what makes data particularly vulnerable. What are the factors that are going to make this data vulnerable? So we started – you know, the folks in Toronto have done such a great job with the EPA. So we started continuing with the EPA and then picking up NOAA, which is what we heard from Union of Concerned Scientists folks. Like that was the agency that NOAA seemed – NOAA is the – National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So we heard from a bunch of scientists that data sets in NOAA were ones they were particularly concerned about. So we're, we're getting those. But honestly, this effort, there's so much um, that – there are so many people working on this, you know, which isn't to say we don't need more. We really do. It's huge. We have a spreadsheet right now um, that has something like 1,800 uncrawlables. Uncrawlables meaning things someone has identified as not being crawled by the Internet Archive, mm -hmm. as not going to be in the Internet Archive. So 1,800. And some of them are we don't really need. Some of them – are pointing to things that we already got in some other way. But like a lot of them are actually going to take one at a time attention. Mm -hmm. So we're just hoping we get as much as we can before things start disappearing. So do you have a sense of when things are going to start disappearing? I certainly don't want to make any predictions. Um, I hope that, you know, I hope, I hope things won't disappear for a long time. But I think there are some things that there are kind of corporate interests in keeping um, there are some, you know, we know that industry needs particular kinds of data and we don't have reason to be con particularly concerned about those. Or there's some data that is already produced in collaboration with either another country or an, a university or something like that. And I think for those, again, we're hopeful that those other parties will kind of pick up if the funding from the U.S. government isn't there. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm I, every day feels like a surprise. I don't know. I mean, there's already this directive 
that's not about environmental data, but this directive that basically no federal funding can go to any mapping or geospatial data production that shows disparities according to race in housing or community. There's a bill in the House to make sure that federal funding never goes to show to that. I mean, it's just kind of mind-boggling to me. It's also about how data is created, not just about what's out there. Do you find yourself thinking about that, about how to make sure that information keeps getting created? or, Or are you just exclusively focused on preserving what exists? No, I think the fact that this this project came from the Program in Environmental Humanities fellows and the, the faculty there and their work has been so closely tied to communities where there is not enough data. So, you know, I don't know what I can do to encourage people to keep producing data, but certainly I work in a university library. You know, there are so many people who are working on this problem, right, who have been for years working on the problem of how to save and share and make available data. There are companies, there are nonprofits, there are like library consortia. You know, this is an issue. It's not an issue in the mainstream media, but it's certainly an issue in the library community. And so I think this work, I think the more we can tie it together with those efforts which have been making huge strides, but very quietly, and I will say not as quickly as we now see they need to be. Um, So that's sort of the task now. It's sort of like, okay, speed up all of these amazing efforts that have been like really responsibly moving forward and at the same time get what we can um, in a a responsible way right now. So what's the end goal here? I mean, uh, assuming you're able to pull all of the data that you want to pull... Uh, what's next? <laughs> I mean, that's like, I mean, I think honestly, uh, as much as I care about access to information and it's my career, I care deeply about it. I think the more people understand the, and own their own data and information, the more people are sort of connected to the sources of data that that describe them, describe their communities, that's what will ensure that it keeps getting made. I want this project to lead to people banging down their library doors and saying, like, I need access to this data in this form for my community so I can do this with it. Um, Not necessarily their libraries, their government, their municipal. You know, I think getting people more connected to the facts that represent them, getting them more engaged with making sure that those facts really do represent them and their communities. And and again, also the research community, obviously the scientific and research community, making sure that they have channels to share their information in ways that don't rely on federal environmental and government websites. So part of the goal then, if, if I'm understanding right, is to do part of what you've always done, yeah. which is not just to preserve information, but also to give people better. Yes more powerful access to it. Absolutely. That's the goal. Yes. So what will that look like, do you think? I'm kind of excited about the fact that I don't know. Like, I'm so focused right now on making the data as accessible as possible. And I think the world of researchers and scientists and tech people and communities that will, like, use it and transform it and make sense of it, like, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to end up. But I know that if we make it as available as possible and we get as many people as possible excited about it, like, it will be a lot of things. You've been listening to librarian Lori Allen. In a minute, she talks about how she joined the profession in the first place.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I think that libraries of all the sort of public spaces in our world are one most steeped in kind of mythology, uh, in, in stereotypes, uh, image of, you know, book line shelves, but it sounds like that's not the kind of library work you're doing. That's certainly true. I haven't been the kind of librarian who works mostly with books for quite a while. That said, the more I work in the digital world, the more closely tied I see that it is to especially older and rare materials, the way that we as libraries approach understanding, you know, medieval manuscripts is really, really useful for for understanding new ways of sharing knowledge. So early book history, right, is this moment in history where there was information being produced really rapidly by lots of different people in different forms, and there was all this contention, and we in libraries have to sort of deal with that. So I end up learning, the more I get deeply into the digital world, the more I actually have come to work closely with the folks who deal with the very, very old things. You work at a university library. How much of what you're doing, what you're focusing on, is driven by the research, the inquiries of faculty uh, students there? I mean, the vast majority. Our work at the Penn Library is to collaborate with the faculty and students at Penn and the research that they need. That said, libraries have a kind of commitment to the world of information to to sort of being stewards, good stewards of knowledge. And so as a librarian at Penn, I am responsible to and for the community at Penn and their information needs. But as a librarian, I am responsible to a broader history. <laughs> it's about the work of preservation yeah, more exactly. generally. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so what in your life made you want to commit to librarianship, to these ideals of of preservation in the first place? Um, so funny. Librarianship really felt like a calling to me, honestly. I didn't notice it at all. I was, I was a student worker in the library in college. I had no thought I might want to be a librarian. And I don't know. I wanted, I wanted a job around smart people, around academia, and I didn't want to pick a thing and do that for the rest of my life. I didn't, I don't have a research agenda. Um, or as I get older, I think I'm developing one, but as a 22-year-old, I didn't have a thing that I said, I want to contribute this. It's very easy for me to get excited about new ideas. And it felt like librarianship was this way that really brilliant people could bring me their ideas and I could like learn just enough about them to help, to contribute. And then I didn't have to write the papers, um, right? Like, <laughs> like so I was so I became a reference librarian. So that was part of it. Was just like so your first training was was in reference as a reference librarian. Yeah, and then and but yeah, the other part was I was a philosophy major and I studied the organization of knowledge as a kind of mm. the way that we organize the world is the way that we understand the world. And so libraries also they were a little bit like of a secret power source, right? Because mm -hmm. they they describe explicitly the way that we organize what we think we know. Among some library listservs that I'm on, there was a conversation about the fact that there's no subject heading for intersectional feminism. 
And so when we assign subject headings to a book that is about intersectional feminism, which is a thing, we have to say that it's either about black women or it's about feminism, right? Um, we can say that it's both and have the reader infer that maybe it's about intersectional feminism. But the fact that the category intersectional feminism is not acknowledged by the Library of Congress subject headings means to some extent that our system is saying it's not real. Libraries make those decisions explicit. This is a real thing in the world. And a book is going to get shelved here because it's about this thing and this thing exists. Um, that's a decision that libraries have to make because they have to shelve things that we can be a little sloppier about in the rest of our lives. So those two things, being around smart people without having to write papers and organizing so information. If I, if I understand you right, librarians are the secret legislators of the world. <laughs> uh, I wish. If only. Uh, so what kind of training did you do, though? Did you did, I assume, a, a master's of library science? I did. Yes, I, I went to Simmons in Boston. I did a master's in library science. Um, I was pretty much in the – I did a lot of digital library courses. Um, Candy Schwartz, fantastic, fantastic professor. And But I, I kind of knew by the time I left that I wanted to be an academic reference librarian. Mm -hmm. So, And I actually graduated from library school in um, 2002, which is right when Google, um, the search engine – really kind of took over the world. It had AdSense opened then. So my library school career, like I think mine was the last class in library school at Simmons to do the search engine comparison assignment because by the after my class it was like it's Google. This They're assignment better. was like you had to look at like Yahoo versus Google versus I don't even remember. Alta Vista. Alta Vista. Uh, Ask Jeeves. Yes, exactly. We had to. We had this assignment, and you had to do this comparison of all these search engines and pick the best one. And it was sort of like, okay, we can stop giving that assignment. It is Google. So during the time that you were then sort of jumping into librarianship as a career, as a practice, the whole way that people went about doing research was changing. The way that people were accessing information was and, and is, in fact, still Change, even if Google is still the primary you know, search engine for most people, the ways that it works, the ways that we access information, the ways that we process it uh, are, are shifting so rapidly now. What's it been like to be working in this field amidst all of that change? Fun. It's a really fun job. I am really, really grateful that I had – I worked at Penn when I first got out of library school and I worked at the reference desk in the main library for two hours a day during a time when the reference desk really was still a place where even though Google was around, I mean, there just wasn't as much in it as there is now. And so I am so glad that I had that experience with the a million reference questions a day and just getting practice, having conversations with people as they – try to understand what it is they're looking for, like what kind of information would help them answer their question, mm. is that's my training, which I feel really lucky for because I think that skill, the kind of understanding what what kind of information do I need, like who might have written something that would help me answer this question is a really hard part of life. And it's a fun moment to interact with people in. So I've never worked as a librarian when the field hasn't been changing rapidly. It's to some degree I have some like change fatigue in that like, yep, still changing rapidly. Every minute I've been a librarian, it's been rapidly changing and it's been like 15 years. So so at what point along the way in those last 15 some years did you make the shift from work at the reference desk to work on digital efforts, digital preservation? It feels very much like a continuum. Like it wasn't 
a huge shift. So I started as a general reference librarian and then I began to specialize in social science data. So um, I, I went to a one-week training camp to learn about the census after the 2000 census to learn about how to how to make sense of it and all that sort of stuff. And I became social science data librarian at Penn. So I worked basically helping faculty and students, especially those who didn't have a lot of experience using data, get access to often sort of contextual information for their research. And then I moved to Haverford, which is a small college. Um, and I had a more kind of leadershipy role there. And my old boss um, at Haverford, Terry Snyder, when she got there, she said she wanted to start a digital scholarship department. And she really felt like the future of libraries is in special collections and digital. And um, digital scholarship meaning creation of new kinds of things with faculty, thinking about new kinds of scholarship that are made together with libraries. And um, she asked me if I wanted to lead up the new section in our library for digital scholarship um, and, and build out what that would be. I think, you know, she knew she wanted it to be digital, to be engaged with the internet. And I think she and I shared um, the perspective that keeping the scholarly question at the center, at the heart of digital scholarship was the only way for libraries to engage with it. And so she and I had a really shared commitment to making sure that digital scholarship at our library was always going to be starting with and drawing from the scholarly question at the heart. When you're working on these questions of digital scholarship with with people, whether you're looking at census data or I don't know what else, do you have to learn a lot about the thing you're helping people research and work on and manipulate? Uh, or Or is it enough to just know where the archives are, what they might contain, and so on? Um, I think it's it really helps. The more you know about the content that you're trying to find or make use of, the more you understand the way that um, a per particular discipline organizes itself or, or the way that, um, you know, information flows within a particular um, community, the the easier it is to find things, you know. And so I, I used to think of it as sort of like faculty members have all this content expertise, so they don't actually have to have very good search skills because they don't need to do very much searching. They just know who probably wrote something about that, and then they can just go get that. And librarians don't have to have super deep content expertise because we're pretty good at um, searching, right? We're pretty good at at taking a huge landscape of stuff we don't know very much about and identifying what probably is the most important stuff and um, looking in the right places. And so we're pretty good at searching and that sort of thing. And so ideally for students, they get a little bit of both, right? They're, that's part of learning to be a kind of, hopefully, <laughs> ideally, it's part of learning to be a kind of good citizen, right? Is getting to know some things about the world that are just true, like some content knowledge and some expertise about how information works and who produces it and where it comes from. So yeah, I know, you know, the older I get, the more I, I know some stuff. Um, but, but I, you know, as a librarian, my expertise is in the way that it's organized and how to learn more stuff. Yes. <laughs> it's not just about what you know, I guess. Yeah. And, and about, yeah, how to learn more stuff and, um, why it's easier to learn some kinds of things in some ways and other kinds of things in other ways, like how to make a decision about where to start. Oh. Given that you're probably 
dealing more and more with young people who are raised just with Google, do you have to convince people that that you're potentially going to work with that you have something to provide, that there might be things that they're not going to find on their own? No. I think there was a moment that that used to be a thing. So I feel like, at least in my experience, and I have no idea how generalizable this is, but at least in my experience, there was, you know, maybe in 2007, 8, 9, people um, were sort of like, oh, well, we won't need librarians because everyone can find all the information themselves. But I don't know anyone who feels like they can comfortably find all the information, the, the right information, like right now. I don't, you know, I think I don't need to do a lot of convincing of people that curating, right, that's a word that's become so fashionable now because we are all overwhelmed by how much is out there. And so, so much of the work is in figuring out how to narrow your sources, how to identify the collection of things that you care most about and that you want to to draw from. And so, no, I don't – it used to be that, that students were like, I don't need librarians, but I don't even run into that anymore. People are sort of like, oh, my God, you have some idea for how I can feel a little bit more comfortable with this monster landscape of information I can't manage? Like, yes, please. What can you tell me? So it's about helping people find the signal. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Yeah. You've been listening to librarian Lori Allen. After this brief break, she tells us about office life at the library. So what what is a typical day like for you when you're setting out to to help people find their way through all the information that they're dealing with? Um, before this data refuge project started, uh, it was um, you know often meet a lot of meetings, um, meetings with faculty to or graduate students as they approach a project. Someone who knows that they want to try something new in their research. They want to try a new method. We're often having to develop new software because um, software developers are trying to solve commercial problems, and these aren't commercial problems. A lot of it's sort of like, what's the open source software that we might be able to use to change in some way? So You're not just helping people <laughs> find or process information. You're also helping them figure out how to store and preserve information. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, the, the creation part, you know, is the biggest part of my job. That's been the sort of shift um, in my work has been I no longer am primarily helping people find information. I'm now helping people create new information. Um, the more I get into this work, the more I see that those two are actually always connected, mm-hmm. right? You you look for things because you're trying to make something and you make something because you want other people to look for things. I guess I would say libraries have always been productive spaces. They have always been spaces where people make things. Um, And so, but yeah, a lot of what I do is like build software. Well, it comes back, (laughs) it comes back to what you said uh, earlier, I think that, that the way we organize information says a lot about the way we understand the world. Right. Libraries in that sense, presumably are contributing to our ways of seeing. Oh, sure. And are, and are affected by our ways of seeing. what what's the workplace like though? I, I mean, what kind of environment are you doing all of this work? And you're in these meetings. Presumably, you spend a certain amount of time in front of a, of a computer screen. Yes. Uh, where are you doing all of this? <laughs> in the library. 
Um, but not in the stacks. No, I have an office, and um, I have I have an office. My colleagues, um, m- many of my colleagues, are in a big office nearby that has like uh, workspaces. We have a bunch of student workers who work in there as well. Um, so meetings are usually, you know, table, whiteboard, screen, big screen, which I have in my office, or we get some group study room. Sometimes we some absolutely. In fact, I might be meeting, missing a meeting right now that involves actual rare rare materials, right? Uh-huh. Um, digitized materials or originals that will be or have been digitized. But um, but yeah. So in in the library, um, I have I have a lovely office. And what what are the workplace dynamics like? Do you do you spend a lot of time talking when you're not in meetings to your to your <laughs> colleagues, or, or are people just buttoned down staring at their no, I have an office, awesome, awesome community of collaborators in the library. I mean, so my department, the digital scholarship department, currently has nine people in it. Um, uh, two are digital humanities specialists, which means that they focus, they work together with the um, Price Lab for Digital Humanities and the library on supporting digital humanities explicitly. And I won't get into what that is, but their work is awesome. Um, it's a really fun place to work. I think one of the reasons people like being librarians is because it is so we're all on the same team ultimately like everyone who works in a library is pretty much in it because they want to to do this thing to make information like evidence more readily available more widely used um it's a pretty it, you know the only thing bad thing is the is the we're all so self-righteous <laughs> It's just a sense of shared values. No, it that, really that, is. That drive everyone. Yeah, it, it is. It's actually wonderful. Like I have so many friends who work in academia in the um, who are faculty, and I, that seems nice too. But I would never, I wouldn't trade this. It's so fun. <laughs> uh, historically, the uh, the gender dynamics of libraries have been strange. Um, a lot of the, the majority, I think, of generally of of the the kind of line workers, the people doing the real everyday work in libraries, have been women and. Uh, and the managerial side of things is, is typically male. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that does that dynamic still ring true to you these days? Um, I've I've only had a few jobs in libraries, and my bosses, and so I've only had like a few bosses, and mostly they've been women. It's a really really white field. I'll say that, and I think that it is damaged by its whiteness. Um, it's really it would be a much richer profession if it were less homogenous yes homogenous i will say that yes people trust libraries and they trust librarians and i think that means that the harm that um, libraries can do when they are unwelcoming spaces is much greater because there's so much trust in these institutions to be spaces that are unwelcoming because you don't see anyone who looks like you because the there's a kind of not just who looks like you that the the experiences of people of color of basically non upper middle class white women are are and men are really missing from libraries and as these incredibly trusted institutions there's actually more harm done i think when when the library is not on your side cuz the library is so good mm-hmm. you know and there's something um i do love working in libraries and i love them and i believe in them um and i also believe that there is a lot of work to be done in holding them to the standards that they espouse. Um, I and and yeah, there have I mean, as I said, I have been really lucky to have a few. I mean, I've had three women 
bosses who were my direct supervisors who've been just fantastic mentors. Um, you know, yeah, I think that library leadership is um, often really male dominated in a lot of places. And I won't say more than that. <laughs> if an ordinary non-librarian, maybe even non-scientist wanted to pitch in in these kind of data preservation efforts, uh, they wanted to, to participate. Are there things that, that you need? Are there things that yeah. people can do that could help the work you, you're doing? Absolutely. I think um, we have a couple things on our website that describe, you know, feeding the Internet Archive, for instance. There are um, there are parts of agencies and agencies that have not yet been fully crawled by the Internet Archive. And that um, I really don't want to undersell how deeply important that is because that's the context, mm-hmm. right? That's the that's the 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 way that the current administration has described the information people need. So that's one thing is just um, taking a piece of an agency and um, feeding the Internet Archive. And you could just go to the Wayback Machine and contribute there or the End of Term Archive Project has a way to do that. Um, and right now there aren't – big sites haven't come down. So there's still work to be done there. Um, we have events in like 15 or 20 cities and at every event there's a lot of work for people who are scientists, who are librarians, who are de- developers, but also people who aren't. There's, you know, the the structure of these data refuge events, um, the collaborations that we've built with this other organization, the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, like we these events are are they're hard to put on their work, but they're they have room for everyone. And so I think um, there's that work. There's also just getting to know people in your community who use this data and advocating. Um, so yeah, we have event. There's the events. There's feeding the Internet Archive, and then we're really, really working hard on um, some tools that will allow people to contribute in a distributed way. That you don't need to go to an event and all that. Though we love the events because they do. They're fun and they bring people together to talk about the issue of environmental and climate data, which even though it wasn't my thing before, is really a fascinating kind of intersection of the physical world and the information world. It's interesting that you stress the importance of an event in the real world when you're dealing with real physical data um, that exists primarily on the internet. Yeah. Do you think that these kind of material interactions with one another around this seemingly immaterial stuff helps us remember that it is real and that it describes real yes change absolutely absolutely and i think um i think that the you know the the problem of environmental um and i've learned so much of this from my colleagues in in the environmental humanities group but um the problem of of sort of climate change the environmental catastrophe that we're currently living through is going to require really broad participation. It's going to require new alliances, right? Like people staying in their lane is what made this problem happen, um, that we don't think um, at multiple – I mean, they actually just had a conference called Timescales um, where we did a little exhibit uh, exhibit about data, data and datum. It was called datum. It was about dates in datum. But this notion of timescales, people are not used to thinking across geologic time and and data time, right? But we have to. We actually have to think together across disciplines, across communities. And so these events help that. Um, I also think 
you know, as a person who works at sort of the intersection of the humanities and technology a lot of the time, I really believe that like social justice um, sort of theorizing and technology folks need to like look at one another more frequently and learn and take ownership over learning a little bit more of each other's world. So I, I think these events um, an opportunity to sort of recognize that these are real people who do who the people who program computers are not like a different kind of person. They're just other people sometimes. Like same is true for the people who, um, you know, the, the fact that there are scholars in the room talking about how to describe this problem, and they're just talking about it like regular people. That's one of the things that happens at every data refuge event is people spend time talking about the long trail about how can we think long term about this problem. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. I'm Jacob Rogan. Uh, This was a special episode for me because I was raised in the library world, raised by librarians, and I am really grateful that we had this opportunity to talk to Lori. Uh, We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Our email address is working at slate.com. On that note, we actually want to thank... Jessica Bennett of the L. Douglas Wilder Library at Virginia Union University, who wrote to us and recommended that we speak with a librarian or archivist. She was right, and I'm glad we did it, and I hope that more people write to us and recommend things. Uh, We'll try to do them whenever we can. You, our listeners, um, make the work that we do better when you share your thoughts with us, um, and we're so uh, thankful to all of you. Uh, you can also listen to past episodes at slate.com slash working. Working is produced and edited by Mickey Capper. With this episode, we want to also thank Denise Ross, who introduced us to Lori Allen, uh, helped us set this episode up. Uh, thanks to Afim Shapiro. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai, and the chief content officer of the Panoply Network is Andy Bowers. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.